Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a take-no-prisoners defense attorney finds himself charged with murder. Was he set up by the cops he'd been taking down? We'll discuss the trials of Frank Carson from the L.A. Times. Plus, two college students dreamed of making smoking healthier. Their critics say they only made it worse. We'll review The Vaping Fix from Wondery. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast about law and order at SVU, my husband and love of my life and co-author, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Do you think you have to tell people what the These Are Their Stories podcast is yes. about? You don't think people could get, get it from the context? nothing wrong with dropping a little branding, just, in, Kevin. I'm just saying. Remember, this was also a question on national television, on a game show. About These Are Their Stories podcast? Yeah. It said, These Are Their Stories podcast is... Is about what TV show? But I have a question for you. And I know the guy never listened. If but... you don't get the illusion, you're probably not going to listen to but the podcast. But if it were, if it were that story. obvious, would it be a question on a game show? No, it was supposed it was to be easy. because they're hoping somebody like me is on. <laughs> yeah. Also with us is author, private investigator, certified pet detective, and resident cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Meow, Rebecca. <laughs> and finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author of the City Trilogy, host of Strange Arrivals, which is about UFOs. Now and that you have to explain. Patreon deep dive book club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. It's uh, it's UAPs these days. Right, right, right. Toby, how have you been feeling about all of the mainstreaming of UFOs. As we all know, you are a skeptic. I am a believer. But like the government is now in on the game. Uh, the New York Times is in on the game. The Navy's in on the game. UFOs are a real phenomenon. No one's saying there's actually like little alien men in them. But like, are you feeling... It's the I don't Russians, know, right? Are, are you feeling it's 100% de- the Russians. Are you feeling demoralized now that uh, UAPs slash UFOs are mainstreaming and even the government is admitting they are in fact real? Am I feeling demoralized? Yeah. No, it's supposed to be good for me. It's supposed to get drum up interest in my podcast. Good for your um, brand. <laughs> it's interesting because I don't know. Like I read this stuff and it's not like I'm like a UFO expert, but I have now spent some time on it. And it's clear that some of these reporters who are writing stories have not. Uh, uh-huh. So there's just very obvious stuff that pops up. And I'm just like, I may not know much, but I know that, that ain't right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and so 
just I kind of feel like if I had a greater breadth of knowledge, I'd be even more dismayed by the coverage. So what you're saying is you could, in fact, be a talking head on Ancient Aliens yeah. on the History Channel. No, be a source for the Today Literally, Show. my only goal for you, fuck the Today Show, Ancient Aliens. <laughs> I love the Ancient Aliens. The ancient Aliens, as my son always says, Ancient Aliens is so great because they take the historian who works at Harvard and like just talks about right. the historical context of some thing that happened in the same era where someone like claims to see a UFO. And then they have the crazy UFOologist with the weird jewelry and the weird hair. And they give them equal weight in the show. Like, they're the yeah. same. That's <laughs> what makes it ancient aliens. Which side are you going to be on? Are you going to be, like, the weird-haired jewelry guy, or are you going to be the Harvard guy? <laughs> I want to be right in the middle. I want to be the weird-haired Harvard guy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, but, it, it's you know, it's definitely an interesting moment. And then I think this report's going to come out, and I think there's going to be a lot of disappointment and also people trying to make the most out of what little is in it. And then I think it's just going to kind of go away. What are you going to do, Toby? Because you've always said, like, the whole reason you're such a skeptic is because, you know, there's no concrete evidence, no video, no photos. What are you going to do if that shit's in the report? Are you going to retract all of your cynicism or are you just going to be cynical about that? Uh, sure, it'd be 100% great. I mean, if they had, like, some piece of evidence that you would actually look at in a courtroom and say, wow, this this might actually be true. That would be awesome. But to date, it's still the same like blurry ass photos and you know, <laughs> it's the same <laughs> it's the same people. And then it's like these people who supposedly know these big secrets, instead of going through the channels that you would normally expect, are still like going on podcasts, like obscure UFO podcasts to reveal this top secret information and stuff. So it's, it's, it's kind of weird. Uh, so we'll see. When it comes out, you know, when there's a, some official government document that's out there and people can take a look at it, uh, I think that'll be sort of a, a watershed moment and we'll see what's in it. Although I think they're already sort of setting the expectations as like every other UFO report since like 1950, which is, yeah, we can explain most of the stuff. There's some stuff we can't explain, but it doesn't seem like it's aliens and we're not too worried about its effect on our national defense. So, you know. Sounds like we need to hook Toby up on an after show with one of these people who goes on obscure podcasts. Our podcast is also pretty obscure. Mm. All right. Are you guys ready to start with the first review of the evening? Let's do it. Leading off. I haven't had any qualms about going after law enforcement for lying. If they fudge, once they fudge, it's open season. Defense attorney Frank Carson was a rough courtroom brawler, unafraid to accuse police and prosecutors of corruption to win cases. His unapologetic style earned him admiration among his clients and hatred from law enforcement. If you go to court and you lose as a DA and you come back and you say, I lost this case... But damn it, it's because of Frank Carson. He cheated. He lied. He, he did these things. Whereas really, as a DA, you failed. But the disappearance of a small-time thief led investigators to focus on Carson. They accused him of masterminding a killing with a menagerie of co-conspirators, including his wife, convenience store owners, an art student, a drug-addicted snitch, and highway patrolmen he'd never met. Was the criminal attorney as violent as his clients, or was it a vendetta by the cops and lawyers to bring down their pugnacious foe? Bunch does not suggest the possibility that someone besides himself might be better suited for this assignment. 
believes unmentioned that he has been a special target of Carson's wrath for years. The Los Angeles Times and Western Sound are out with the eight-part podcast, The Trials of Frank Carson. Dirty John host Christopher Gofford uses police audio, wiretaps, and interviews with Carson and others to lay out the case. It's filled with changing stories, thin connections, overly zealous investigators, and antiques, which leads to one of the longest criminal trials in California history. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from the trials of Frank Carson. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Toby Ball. Yes. Carson, on the uh, crusty scale, one to 10, where do you peg him on the crusty scale? Yeah, he's pretty high up there. I mean, there's two Carsons, right? There's the uh, out-of-control, angry Carson who screams, get out 17 times in 30 seconds to some cops. And then there's the sort of mellow, but still pretty crusty Carson who is the interviewee on this podcast. So yeah, he's 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 pretty crusty. I imagine he's a pain in the ass to deal with even if you're kind of friends with them. Yeah, but don't you think, Toby, like the, the podcast does a good job of, you know, we have the, the prosecutor setting us up as he's this wild car. We have tape of him screaming at cops. Right, we're ordered off the property. You should yeah, calm down. Yeah. Well, we're also investigating. Get out. If it's a shooter, get out. You're a person of interest. Get out. You need to get out. Get out. Get out. Get out. But then when you the scene is actually set, like, he's not screaming at cops. He's exercising his constitutional rights to not be questioned without a warrant in his place of business, which is private. It all, like, is very different when you sort of understand what's going on, right? Yeah, sort of. I mean, he's asserting his rights pretty uh, aggressively. So I guess my feeling wasn't necessarily that he was wrong to do what he was doing, but I thought it indicated a personality that was probably pretty aggressive in other situations as well. I mean, I think just about everybody kind of hints at that. Even his friends are like, well, you know, he goes hard in the courtroom, but the the Frank I know at home isn't like that. It's like, well, I freaking hope not. Hmm. So I guess that's part of the question about him is, is that a persona he's putting on? You know, there's a lot of people talking about like he's got this corn pone, you know, ah, shucks persona. And then he's got this like, vicious, loud, make judges cry persona. And like, what's the real him? Or are they both two sides of the same coin? Or, or what's the story? I think both can be true. Laura Bricker, what do you think of Frank just as a central character in this story? I like Frank. You know, he does remind me of some defense attorneys I've known. And I like that. Who? We are- name names. Name names. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't name, but it, the, the shocks part where he's kind of like downplaying, um, like attorneys I know that would be like out like pretending they were reading like this like dime store detective novel and they'd like seem totally out of it. And then they'd get up and they'd obviously been paying attention the whole time and rattle off a bunch of case law and like case dismissed or, you know, win their motion or whatever. So there is something about that sort of theatrical side to defense work and People who do have a very different personality outside the courtroom than they do inside the courtroom when they're in there advocating for their clients. So I liked that part of him. Um, And I like that we heard from all different sides of people that dealt with him. I mean, I think that the audio was very effective because, like, they can say he was yelling at people. But then hearing that audio when they were trying to search um, his property, I mean, that, that that was pretty telling because... I heard it like I was pissed off. I was like, 
what a bunch of assholes these cops are being right now. And he is clearly holding the line. And and yeah, he's mad. And I would be too. But anytime you have tape like that, it's, it's just a, another window into another layer of the story. So I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that Frank is everything you want in a lawyer who's defending you. He's kind to his clients. He tells them the truth. He is reasonable when he says, like, listen, you got to get the time for this because you actually did it. But, you know, if you didn't do it or if I, there's a legal reason to really defend you, I'm going to go hard for you. He's like honest and kind to his clients. And then he's a freaking pit bull in the courtroom. Kevin, isn't that who you want? Like, if you're going to hire a lawyer to defend you, don't you want someone that you can personally trust? But then when you take them off the leash in the courtroom, they're going to go after everybody like a pit bull. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, pit bull owners. I know they're very sweet. That was an analogy, poorly worded analogy. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. That is the kind of guy that you want uh, standing up for you. It's not the kind of guy you want to be waiting the table on and you, <laughs> you know, bring him the wrong salad dressing or something like that. I get it, but you know, the thing that makes him a good lawyer, a knowledgeable lawyer about the law, seems to be everything that uh, confirms the suspicion of these investigators. Every time somebody has an alibi, it's because, you know, that they needed to have an alibi. Uh, And then if they uh, don't have an alibi, it's because they're guilty. You know, it just it seems like and I think Chris Goffer does a great job of providing that context that when people are asserting their constitutional rights and you're not talking about like some guy on the street, you're talking about a criminal defense attorney or the wife or stepdaughter of a criminal defense attorney who ought to know more than the average bear about your constitutional rights. That when they say, you know, I want a lawyer, I want to talk. Well, why not? Why, you know, they, it just was it was very infuriating. Don't you feel like we saw a lot of the real Frank when we hear that the cops tapped his phones Mm -hmm. and then we actually hear the taps and he's just like completely freaking normal in these taps. So I guess the front door is broken. The back door may be broken. Did they find any bodies? No. Hell no. There isn't any. Are they done with us then? No, I don't think they're done with us by a long shot. Don't you feel like when someone is talking to a member of their family, like that's who they actually really are? Well, if you're going to later charge everybody in that family with conspiracy, you would imagine at some point they would say something incriminating. But it just seemed to be very frustrating that their philosophy was that the lack of incriminating uh, statements were, was proof of criminality. You know, I'm trying to think back to it isn't since like in the dark where we've had a podcast with such clear misconduct by police or at at the very least, the idea of being misguided. It certainly has something to do with this one cop, this one investigator who put everybody that was on his shit list into this conspiracy. I was really disturbed about the one thing with the highway patrolman. Hmm. who made friends with the guy named 5-0 and that may have been professionally improper, right? To, to, you know, sort of give advice to somebody, whether, you know, you mean it or not. I, you know, if you have a friend who's a cop and is trying to tell you how to avoid it, getting pulled over for drunk driving, other than don't, you know, drive drunk, then, you know, that might not be the kind of thing that the boss is going to appreciate a professional law enforcement officer doing. But... That doesn't mean that he's part of a criminal conspiracy to commit murder. Hmm. I mean, it's such a huge stretch. Atwal appeared worried about possible robbers. 
He feared one might be putting trackers on his car. Quintin R. told him he could enlist the handyman Woody, who went by the nickname 5 to check for trackers with a mirror. You can check your car. Fucking have 5 going to there. Yeah, I'm going to. I tell 5 check every day. <laughs> yeah, just get a mirror. You can buy one with a mirror with the glass. Uh-huh. And you can look under there, brother. So, Laura, what do you think of this idea? This this defense attorney defends a lot of people and is, like, really happy to poke the man. Like, that's his thing, right? But is this, like, a cautionary tale? Because, you know, he's just, in many ways, all I hear, I'm actually surprised to hear you guys say that, you know, some of the stuff that the, the prosecutor and the cops say about him, that he's crazy and stuff is true, because actually all I hear is a defense attorney that's well within his lane to defend. And aren't aren't they supposed to poke the man? What do you think, Laura? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I was listening to this, and I, I agree with Kevin. I think even as I'm listening, I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I'm waiting for this, like, aha moment where I'm like, oh, yeah, it's definitely a conspiracy. I'm like, no, I'm not getting that aha moment. So it's pretty clear that's not the case. To me, as I'm listening so far to the episodes we're in, it, it feels like Frank has really done his job well, and he has been a zealous advocate for his clients. So then I found myself feeling like it was pretty clear he was being targeted. But what does that say about being a defense attorney? You know, because it doesn't seem like the checks and balances are working here in terms of actually vetting this evidence that I, I wasn't really seeing the evidence, but like vetting the case to make sure it was an actual case before they're bringing charges. So, you know, if you're a defense attorney and you're doing your job, I mean, is this something that's always sort of in the back of your mind that you get the wrong prosecutor, you get the wrong investigator who's really pissed off about the fact that you are doing your job well and something like this happens? And You certainly hope that the system works in a case like this. And I know from reading spoilers, because I just couldn't contain myself, that the system does work in this case. But it's really maddening to listen to and think about, like, so so you're doing your job and you're making enemies. But you also kind of hope that that's not going to and it's, you know, you're doing your job, you're making enemies. And it's it's in this case, making you a target. Right. Toby, what do you think about the power differential here? I mean, we have Frank, obviously an effective defense attorney, and then we have prosecutors and cops. And they just, I mean, they're underlining things. We actually hear contradictory evidence to the things they are underlying in the podcast. Doesn't that point to a power differential? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the things that kind of stuck out. You know, regardless of how good a lawyer Frank is and how many people he gets off and stuff, you know, he doesn't have the power of the state, right? I mean, he can't go after a prosecutor who he personally doesn't like in any way other than trying to get his clients off. He can't try and get that person arrested for some dicey murder, for instance. And you guys spent, like, I've the only time I've spent in a courtroom has been as a juror. But, you know, my sense is, is that there's some, there's a, you know, a, a justice community is is that right? Where, you know, prosecutors and defense attorneys kind of know each other and, yeah. you know, there's some kind of comedy or whatever. Yeah, it's pretty typical that they pass each other in the hallway. They they have lunch together. I mean, it's a community of lawyers, essentially. It's, like, I think it depends on the jurisdiction that you're in, mm-hmm. certainly. But certainly where we live, it's like that. So it seems like he's outside of that, right? I mean, he's he's like, screw that. Like, that's not helping my clients at all. Uh, I don't see any reason why I need to play that game. 
And I think that's got to be part of the issue, right? Is that he is just this like complete rank outsider. I don't think he's crazy. I mean, I, he's, he's abrasive, right? I mean, he's abrasive in certain circumstances. And I, I don't think he would necessarily disagree with that, but he's abrasive with a purpose. And that is in defense of his clients and himself. Is he abrasive or is he, I mean, this is the thing that I, 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 I actually don't agree with because the cops are abrasive too. Like they show up, he's telling them to leave. They won't, they're harassing him. Like, why aren't we calling the cops abrasive? Why are we only, why are we calling the person who's actually standing up for himself and his clients abrasive? You weren't asking when, me about the cops. Rebecca. No, but as, but as you said, like <laughs> they have all the power. Like, yeah, the cops are being he, complete complete jerks. I mean, it's not just what we hear on the tape, right? It's like even his friends who are talking, defending him as a person are like, yeah, he's a dick in court, but he's <laughs> he's like a super nice guy. Like when you when he's away from court or if you're like his buddy or, you know, he'll do anything for you. He's a nice guy. But when he's in court, like he's this other person. And I, I guess I'm choosing to use the word abrasive. I yeah. mean, maybe it's aggressive or like successful. <laughs> but I don't think that's. But I don't think that's it. I mean, there's plenty of people who are successful yeah. with different approaches, right? That's true. Abrasive isn't necessarily like a pejorative, but it's just a description of the way he's acting in certain instances. So, Kevin, why don't you talk a little bit about the same idea, like? The the cop vendetta claim, sort of the power differential between the cops and the prosecutors are certainly all in a group together. Mm-hmm. And Frank, like, does it remind you of anything else that we've ever listened to or Stephen watched? Stephen Avery. In what way? Well, it ends up being, okay, well, what is behind this? Ah, oh, it's a conspiracy by the police to set somebody up, right? I mean, at its essence, that's kind of, you know, what it is. And so if you want to ask why, you know, there's a great motive in making a murderer, that, okay, yeah, it's because, you know, there's this lawsuit against, you know, them. And so now we're- Manitowoc driving, County. Manitowoc County. And now, you know, we're there's a burn pit. And those and, cops but, are also just dicks. The cops are also just dicks. And the prosecutor's a dick. <laughs> right. And so here you have, you know, a story about uh, a guy who is, yeah, he's an asshole. And so they really, the cops and the prosecutors really don't like him. And, and to that end, they are so blinded by their- distaste for him that when there is you know a case that is somewhat tangentially related to his property somehow everybody gets on the train that he's the mastermind of some big murder conspiracy and they hang a lot of it on this one witness Hmm. robert woody and we hear throughout the podcast christopher gofford playing for us audio of this guy changing his story sort of being pushed along by the cops, very much like a, a Brendan Dassey, mm-hmm. trying to tell them what they want. But they never he never gives them the thing that they want. Mm. He just keeps telling them what they want to hear. He never really incriminates himself, even to the point where they take him into the woods to like where the body was oh left. Oh, my God. That was incredible. They are not your friends. They do not want to find you to send you a care package. Would he beg Jacobson to just tell him what he needed to say so that he could go home? He said he was willing to make, quote, false statements if it helped them. The story that sets me free, what he called it. If you were an impartial prosecutor and you didn't know Frank Carson and you didn't think he was a dick and would love to see him fry, there'd be a lot of red flags in this case. Hmm. I mean, that are just blatantly obvious. And that's why I love this story. I mean, we talk a lot already about Frank and himself. But as far as the podcast is put together, like the story idea, again, I got to give it to Christopher Gofford because... 
just like with Dirty John, he plucked this story not out of nowhere because it's out there. This drew a lot of media attention in California, but he just kind of knows what makes a story special Hmm. and how to polish that gem. And I, you know, I just am really digging this podcast. You mean a story that, like, on paper doesn't seem special, but has something under underneath it, right? Like, yeah. like you say in your notes, this one investigator seems to just be going after everyone he doesn't like. Like, that's, like, pretty clear. Like, he shouldn't even mm. be in this case. And he's legit just, like, pointing to people he doesn't like and just pulling them in. Laura, one of the things that really struck me that's just a fact is that this whole conspiracy hinges on the fact that Frank allegedly got these guys to, quote, watch his property, like his personal junkyard where he kept his retirement account slash John from S-Town style antiques collection. But it turns out that, like, that meeting happened where he asked these guys to watch that, like, weeks and weeks after the murder. Like, it's just not true, this conspiracy that they're alleging. Don't you feel like the arrows just point to it's just, like, not true, including all the Woody stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think they actually went back and sort of changed one of the dates to make it so it worked. And and that was ridiculous. But the Woody stuff, I think, was the thing that was the most ridiculous to me because he was the one that was on tape telling this just fantastical story about how the two brothers from the convenience store, which, by the way, has the best name ever, the Pop and Cork. Yes. Um, Mm. So that they just like killed Corey Kaufman by accident. And then just for no apparent reason, this Woody guy's like, oh, well, sweet. Let's cut off his fingers, cut off his hair and feed him to the pigs. And I'm like, Mm. people believed this? Like, this is ridiculous. I mean, like ridiculous. Especially when his whole body was found. Yeah. He was not cut up and fed to and pigs, then he right? was, Yeah. And then he's like, well, I wanted to impress my girlfriend. And I'm like, who are you dating that's going to be impressed that you fed someone to pigs? <laughs> <laughs> that is the real question. That is the podcast question. Now, I've heard a few of you mention the sort of formatics and hosting style of the podcast. We have heard Christopher Gofford, as Kevin mentioned, host another very well-known podcast, Dirty John. Toby, what do you just think of how this story has been put together? Because I found myself listening and thinking, like, this could be like a below-the-radar kind of boring thing that, like, someone decided to make a podcast out of, and you're just like, meh. What do you think of how it was put together? What do I think of the Goff sauce? Yes, the Um, Goff sauce. Goff sauce. Uh, He's really good. You know, there's a lot of moving parts in this one, quite honestly, uh, which I think makes it a little bit harder to tell just because it's, you know, you got to keep track of people. And, and part of what's good, he does a good job of turning these people into, I wouldn't say characters, but you do kind of have these things in your mind about them. Like he character, I guess he characterizes them pretty well. So it's like the two brothers who own the Poppin' Cork are these Indian brothers who lift a lot of weights and are kind yep. of friends with the cops. And, you know, so he, he does a good job of sort of orienting you to who the people are so that you can kind Character of follow along with what's going on. Yes. Yeah, but it's not, but he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on it, right? He does it very, very efficiently, which is, you know, good storytelling. So yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, he's sort of he sort of entered the uh, the Rolodex of of people who you like keep your eye open for the next the next time they have a podcast out because you're psyched to listen. I had an editor once, first magazine editor I ever wrote a story for, who told me about his theory about character development, like what you do. Mm-hmm. 
If uh, someone has a neck tattoo, say it's a neck tattoo. Don't just say it's a tattoo. That tells you everything you need to know, mm-hmm. right? All right, Laura, what do you think of, of the goth sauce? Which, by the way, sorry, Christopher Gofford, but that is your name now. Goth sauce. Oh, my gosh. I, I like it. I, I kind of think of him when I listen to him that he's in the same vein as somebody like Bill Rankin, somebody that's been reporting in an area for an extremely long time. That is an extremely trusted source that's, you know, extremely trusted journalist, somebody that is actually out reporting and doing the story, but somebody who also, you know, knows how to tell a story, knows what's an interesting part of the story. And I find like the narration and the storytelling style, it's just interesting. And he's just got a really personable way of delivering the story but also throwing in little nuggets along the way that keep you listening because they're super interesting. I mean, like the pigs eating the guy. I mean, you know, or Mm. or other details. You know, I just, I think he is a really good storyteller. Kevin, thoughts on the goff sauce before we give our review? Yeah, I mean, he's he's great. I think the the secret to the goff sauce, the secret's goff sauce, is... (laughs) Is no secret. It's just that he's a great journalist. You know, he's a newspaper journalist, and he brings those sensibilities to the story that he is telling. And like he parachuted in and hung out with Frank and went to court and everything. And so it isn't like after the fact he came in and said, "Tell me more about uh, how you uh, you know you fought the law and the law won or hmm. whatever." He's not a household name, hmm. or you know, a you podcast. Mean, goth sauce isn't yeah. Goth sauce isn't. But his his work is. Mm. And so he, you know, he's probably, I'll say, one of the more underappreciated podcast journalists out there. You know, he did a great job with Dirty John and uh, with Detective Trap. I like that one better than you guys did. But, you know, he's uh, he's not a guy who decided to go get uh, a, a USB microphone at Staples and make a podcast. Laura, a uh, quick question. You said you Googled this case. I did not. Uh, did Frank Carson have a ponytail? Yes or no? No. Okay, because we know that defense attorneys like this usually have ponytails. That's why I asked. Do they not? Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seth Beta's attorney had a ponytail. It's a phenomenon. All the like crusty defense yep. attorneys seem to love that ponytail. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out The Trials of Frank Carson? It's a new podcast from the LA Times and Dirty John reporter Christopher Gofford. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Trials of Frank Carson? This is a thumbs up. Christopher Gofford is a really good storyteller. This is a really, um, for me, it was a rage-inducing listen because my like sense of injustice listening to a defense attorney that had always been doing his job and defending his clients now being on the other side in a case that, um, not too much of a spiller to say, maybe he should not have been there. You know, it just was a really compelling look into this case, but also told in such a way that it was engaging and it's interesting. And I'm eager, you know, I did spoil it by looking it up, but I'm also eager to see how the podcast wraps up this story. So I'll definitely keep listening. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the trials of Frank Carson? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a solid thumbs up. I, this is just a really solid podcast. I mean, I think it's really well told. It's got a very interesting central character. It feels like it could be a novel, you know? I mean, it's got that same sort of rebel lawyer, like fighting the man and the man, like trying to screw him. And it's got these sort of colorful side characters that he's friends with. And it's, it's interesting, well told, thumbs up. 
Who would play Frank Carson in the movie of that novel, Toby? Any ideas? Oh, my God. Um, Brian Dennehy. Tommy Lee Jones. He died. Oh. Yeah, all these guys are too <laughs> old now. Matthew, like, uh, Matthew McConaughey. Well, he was in a... Not too young. Too young. No, we, need, like, we, need, Ed, we need like a... How about Ed Harris? Yeah. Ed, Har- Ed Harris is so old. Oh, Woody I, Harrelson. I, I love Woody Ed Harris. Yeah, I think Ed Harris is a good pick. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Kevin Flynn, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the trials of Frank Carson? I'm a big thumbs up. I think that this has some great elements from making a murderer, from in the dark. I really want to say that Christopher Gofford... He ought to ask for a raise from the LA Times uh, because uh, he trust me, he's made money on uh, IP deals. Well, I, I hope so. I hope he gets a little piece of all those uh, Bravo TV series, and I hope they make one out of this. Look, you know when Madeline Barron sort of pulled apart the uh, Curtis Flowers case and in the dark. She did so very uh, surgically, but she also was uncovering stuff. Now, in this case, all the stuff that Christopher Gofford is pulling from is in the public realm, but he does such a great job of putting the stuff that's there and then providing the context to find out that this was a big nothing burger. Uh, But the case moves on, and so I say that definitely want to binge this podcast and uh, you will burn some calories rage walking. All right. So before I give my review, I have to throw one fly in the ointment. Sorry, guys. Are you going to talk about music? I really don't like the the way this podcast was put together. The writing is great. The editing is great. Like the, the storytelling is great. It is so tight. It is so strong. And I know that the LA Times, it seems partnered with a, a production company that kind of provides scoring and the final packaging. I think they're picking the wrong team. Honestly, I just do. This could have sounded so much better with just a different treatment. And to me, I did find that somewhat distracting. You do not need, when a story is this strong, to have music under the people talking the whole time. Just don't do that when something is this strong. Sometimes you do need it. Like, listen, I produce undisclosed, and sometimes I have music under long passages of talking just because it's like very dry. So is this a thumbs down or what? No, no, no. It's very dry legal material. But I'm saying in a story like this, you don't need it. So, Either the production company that's working on I would say pair that back, let the story shine if it's this strong, or the LA Times maybe just like look for some producers and scorers who can like make your stuff sing a little bit better. Anyway, that is literally my only complaint. I think this podcast is very strong. I had very low expectations only because when I read sort of the the Cliff's Notes of the case in the description, I was like, eh, it's just really, really good. Christopher Gofford, nice job again. Big thumbs up for me for the trials of Frank Carson. Toby says Bill Camp. Bill Camp. Toby. Genius. Bill Camp. Bill Camp. Thumbs up for Bill Camp. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Kevin, here we are in the business section of the podcast. Business section. And there's music with that, of course. How does that go? ba up, ba Yeah. So, Kevin, what have we got going on on our Patreon right now? Well, uh, right now in your Patreon feeds is the Crime Writers on After Show. What are we talking about? We're going to be talking about a baseball experience I had. Yes. My first ejection. Yes. You were and ejected has, or you ejected somebody? I ejected somebody. Ooh. And it has to do with two coaches 
of nine-year-old baseball players <laughs> who got into a physical altercation. Well, we have to say, like, not a lot of people get ejected to the proportion of games, I'll get, right? Yeah, I'll get yeah. into so, it, yeah. So this is a yeah, bigger is a big deal, deal yeah. than you may think it I is, I had to write guys. a report to the league. You're it's a, a cop. Big You're mess. basically a cop. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> we have a new episode. It's either in the feed now. It'll be there any minute now from Laura Bricker with the newest episode of Leave it to Bricker. And it's cat-related. Of course. It is. It's another uh, successful Lara Bricker cat detective story. A cat that escaped. And um, I went over to help because the grandmother was nannying and couldn't leave the twin babies. And so I went out to help find the cat. And we'll see what happens. I'll leave it to Bricker. I want to give my neighbor, Caitlin, a shout out because she was a dog detective today. She picked up a, a lost dog and did, I followed the whole thing on Facebook. It was like a storyline. She like detectived the whole thing. Dog is now returned to his family. Everything's great. Oh, is you shout gonna, out to you, Caitlin. You're going to love crime of the week then. <laughs> what else have we got going on, on our Patreon, Kevin? Well, we want to let you know that next week will be our Patreon free listen preview Ooh. week. You'll see that it's selected episodes of Crime Writers on Leave It to Bricker, Toby Ball's Deep Dive, Book Club Podcasts, and Mary with Podcast. We gotta put an after show in there. Gotta. Didn't I mention after show? No, you did not. Of course, after show. You get a chance to listen to uh, some of what you've been missing. Kevin, one other thing I wanted to entreat you to do. Can you tell our listeners why they should sign up for the Crime Writers on Newsletter? It's free, by the way. It's free to subscribe. You don't have to pay anything. How do you do it, and why should people do that? Just go to CrimeWritersOn.com. At the very top of the page, you'll see a little space to put a little box thing to type in your email address. We do the rest. We'll send you once a week, send you an email that has a whole list of stuff, not only just a summary of our reviews, but Crime Writers On behind the scenes. You'll get to see photos of our cat, dog, pet of the week. Uh, Also, every week, there's a new bit of CWO merch. Mm. You can now get a t-shirt, coffee mug, pillow, shower curtain, whatever. (laughs) Shower curtain. I actually bought a t-shirt from the merch store. It's the one with the uh, little... Look in your Zoom window and Laura Bricker, step up and show us your chest. Yeah. I bought the one with our little, like, um, like, uh, pop... The little Lego people? No, yeah. Yeah, What are they called? The pop... They're pop heads, yeah. Pop head people of us. It's a freaking awesome t-shirt. Every time I wear it, people are like, ooh, what's that? I'm like, that's me, motherfucker. That's Toby. And you point to your nipple, yes. That's that's Kevin. I have to say, the three of you are all perfectly represented. Toby's wearing, like, a tie-dye t-shirt. Lara's got a cat. Kevin looks like Kevin. I look like me. It's great. It's a great t-shirt. It's my favorite one. So, Kevin, before we return to the show, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Marcella Halverson. And I can't wait for you to say this one. Samantha Prisby-Lowowitz Axtell. Nice. Nicely done. All right, Kevin. What do you say after you say the uh, people's names for the uh, Patreon patron saints of the week? Bless you. Bless you guys. Thank you so much for being our Patreon supporters and patron saints of the week. Does that end the business section? It does. All right. Let's wrap it up. Moving on. The problem with smoking wasn't nicotine. It's the smoke, the byproducts of burning tobacco. That's what produces the tar that damages your heart and lungs. But what if you could get nicotine, the only thing smokers really want, without setting the tobacco on fire? As part of a Stanford graduate assignment, students Adam Bowen and James Monsies proposed a way to give smokers their hit of nicotine without the harmful carcinogens of cigarettes. 
They formed a startup to build the product they believed would wean smokers off traditional tobacco and save lives, a product that would eventually be called Juul. What we've tried to do is create a new paradigm, something that doesn't look like a cigarette, doesn't feel or taste like a cigarette. Um, it's different. A smarter way to smoke? You be the judge. But a series of design flaws, marketing missteps, and a failure to anticipate unintended consequences saw Juul's customer base go from adult smokers looking to quit to teens attracted to its sweet flavors and swap one set of dangerous health consequences for another. And then that's when it felt like I felt like I just couldn't breathe anymore. And it felt like my airway was just like closing almost. In Wondery's The Vaping Fix, Dr. Death host Laura Beale tells the history of the number one vaping product in the world. It's a story of hubris, of two students who thought they'd end America's tobacco problem, but only made it worse. We are going to be talking about plot points for The Vaping Fix, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Now, Laura, I don't know if you've had this experience— But I had the experience about three years ago when my older son was like a sophomore in high school and he told me that in his tiny high school in New Hampshire, everyone vaped all the time in the bathrooms during class, doing the same thing we hear about in this podcast. People are sticking their faces in their backpacks and in their sleeves. Do you think it's important in this at this point, even years later, for parents to listen to something like this so they understand sort of like the scope of this issue? Yeah, that actually was like the first thing I said when I started listening to this podcast. I don't know a lot about vaping. I'm, I mean, I kind of have like a general overview. I don't know. I mean, I know, you know, what I hear about it happening in the schools and things like that. But especially like when I started listening to this, I was a little sneaky. Surprise, surprise. I was like, hey, Will, I'm listening to this podcast. I could use your input on it. So, you know, definitely if you're a parent to a teen, you should listen. But also when your kids are in the car, which is the only time you really have them trapped, you might just throw (laughs) it on. I mean, seriously, like that's like I'm learning the only time that kids that are teenagers actually talk to you. Um, is in the car when they have like no choice when maybe their their earbuds die. So, but uh, you know I hear these stories too. I mean, and I, I heard the story like you know recently like some kid was hanging out with them after school and they were like, oh my god, he's he's like vaping. I'm like, that's still a thing. So yeah. I, I do think the historical context of how it all came about for me was just really interesting to hear. But also, I guess I'm in a different position because I am a parent who has a son who has kids in his school who are still doing this. So it it just, for me, was very eye-opening. Toby, do you remember when, like, e-cigarettes and vaping first came out? And my first thought was, like, that is so fucking stupid. Like, no one is going to want to do that. Do you remember having that feeling, like, when you first saw the ads and you first saw people doing it for the first time? It was like, it's like the Zima situation all over again. Yeah. (laughs) Well, here we are. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's interesting when they talk about, like, we want to make it like an iPod, but that that you smoke. And that seemed to be kind of like the thing that was ridiculous about it was that it was like, oh, it's like a cigarette, but for the digital era. You know, it's legitimately like a public health issue for, for people who deal with the health of, you know, middle school and high school kids. Because I, you know, for my day job, I'm in on those meetings. And vaping is something that is like a priority to deal with, to get the message out about how it is not this kind of harmless little thing, that it's that it, it has health consequences. Um, and the fact that it it's sort of like this weird in-between, like a cigarette and candy. 
Mm. Uh, I think it's hard for sometimes for kids to wrap their head around the fact that something that tastes like bubblegum or peaches or whatever Mango. Is, is actually going to have long-term health consequences. Kevin, I just want to stick with the issue for one more second mm-hmm. because, you know, I we heard a statistic in this podcast that I've heard before, but I think it's like really important to underscore why this is so consequential because we're not talking about kids who smoked who started vaping. We're talking about kids who just started vaping, kids who are not smokers. And there is this statistic we hear in the podcast that if you don't start smoking by like your mid-20s, you probably never will. Right, yep. That like 90-something percent of smokers start at the age of 15 or under. Mm -hmm. And that like there's just this window of time for this addiction to like get you and hold you forever. Like I know, for example... I tried my first cigarette like in my 20s. I cannot smoke. I still can't do it. I still have that thing that you see on TV where people cough the first time mm-hmm. they do yeah. it. I've tried it like 20 times. I still do that every single time like because I didn't do it when I was 15 or whatever. But Kevin, this is a thing like there's a, there's a case to be made here that they made a product that wasn't just a gateway to smoking. It was like better, more addictive, like the candy cigarettes. Like it was candy, right? Yeah, I mean, and this, you know, really is the central issue, you know, this tragic story about wanting to do this great thing and it ends up being, you know, you make the problem worse. So Adam and I were interested in uh, working on design for social change. And we acknowledged right away that smoking was probably an easy target. Um, One image showed Sam blowing smoke. But at the same time, every cigarette is really self-destructive. So clearly there's room for improvement in the overall experience. (laughs) I think the you know one of the misinterpreted things was if they're saying okay yeah if we can keep people from smoking you know until they're 26 or whatever if they haven't done by then then they probably won't be a smoker and that's the problem they did not anticipate I guess that that means kids start smoking when they're 13 let's just say right and we have to do something about that instead of it preventing them from smoking it just got them vaping with jewel at age 13 right so it didn't it didn't change the problem just swapped one device for the other right so it didn't do any good you know what i keep thinking about and you know those of us with the older teenagers actually all of us we have teenagers now can probably relate toby i just keep thinking that a big appeal of vaping with teenagers is the fact that like you can do it in public spaces where it's forbidden and not get caught, like in a lot of situations. Like, isn't there something, I remember being a teenager, isn't appealing, like, just, like, pulling one over on people, getting away with it? Aside from the the addictive stuff, just knowing that you can take, a like, vape in class while your teacher's back is turned and it's not the same as smoking. Do you think that's part of the appeal, too? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I I quite honestly don't see the appeal at all. But, uh, you know, even at the mango, come on, well, it's delicious. Right, the mango. Um, <laughs> like just being at UNH and, and now at UMass Lowell, I mean, so many kids vape and it's kind of like the smoking, but, but cigarettes are just like, so, I mean, if you're a cigarette smoker, like you've got, like everything smells like cigarettes. You're like right? a pariah. Yeah. And. And, and, and you know it's what just, you're getting into with cigarettes. You're like, I'm a cigarette smoker. Like that's like people like know that. Whereas I think yeah. with vaping, it's a thing where you can kind of do it, but it doesn't attach itself to you in the same mm. way that smoking does as far as when you're dealing with other people and stuff. There are no uninformed cigarette smokers, Toby, right? I mean, there are those who are, you know, who are in denial or, you know, don't care about it. People who it. start too young to be informed. Yeah, but yeah. what we hear uh, in the news and in this podcast, people who thought that vaping had none, no health consequences. Well, let's get to that. And had a whole different set of consequences let's get to that, that they didn't know was coming. That's the whole point, right? That's right. And I've had those conversations. 
where it's like, you don't know, I've done the research, it's not what you think. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I kind of feel like it is. So, Laura, we hear over and over again about these stories of these programs at places like MIT and Harvard Business School and Stanford about grad students who have like a business lab experience or design experience. And it's all about creating something that's going to be, quote, disruptive. I mean, that's how companies that have sponsored this podcast started. Companies like Warby Parker and Casper Mattress and Third Love Bras. And I mean, they all started by someone disrupting something like let's make buying razors cheap and easy and not difficult and expensive. And let's start Dollar Shave Club or Harry's Razors. So the idea here with these two students is Let's disrupt big tobacco by, you know, bypassing the smoke danger part of it, giving people that nicotine fix and weaning them off of cigarettes. Tobacco is going to hate us and we're going to get people to stop smoking. Did you know that was the origin story of this product? No. <laughs> I just thought it was like a more effective way to smoke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like Mayor of Easttown. That's why she does yeah, it, right? Yeah, because she can just like walk around all the time and just have a little. Um, yeah. And it was the irony when you hear that story that, you know, especially having followed the news the last few years with all of the attempts to regulate jewels and to raise awareness of the dangers of vaping and how like one vape is equivalent to however many cigarettes and and, and all that public awareness campaign information that we've seen. I mean, I've seen it in the last few years. And then hearing the backstory, it's like, oof, that's not, you kind of have to feel a little bad for these guys. But in a way, it also was like, well, this is, what happens when you have an origin story from Silicon Valley? That's a place that when I think of it, I think of technology, like fancy computers. Elizabeth Holmes. I, yes, I think <laughs> of uh, getting your test, whatever. And um, this is sort of like, if you look at it, like you kind of take like that zoom out, you're like, okay, so this is what happens when those super smart technology brain Stanford grad student types take on something that's actually a public health issue, but they don't necessarily do that part of the research because they're more invested in the technology part of the program, you know, because that's kind of what I, you know, that's, that's the thing. It's like this incubator for these like projects that come out and, and you, you hear that audio of them presenting and it, it does, you feel like you kind of like, I, you you know what's going to happen, but you're listening to it thinking like, oh, man, like they really think they're going to do something good here. You know, do they? But this is the thing. Do they? Because, Toby, when Toby I hear it. that stuff, I hear that stuff. I hear the same thing I heard in like one of the seasons of Startup that was about a startup dating company. I hear the same thing I've heard in every Y Combinator presentation or TED talk that's like about a new technology. It's yes, there's always an altruistic message. But we know at this point that these are all people who are hoping one day to go public or get acquired and sell their company for billions of dollars. I mean, did you hear that at the beginning or did you hear truly altruistic young people trying to create something to help people? Well, I think there's I, I mean, I think the Silicon Valley thing is we're going to be disruptive. We're going to make the world a better place and then we're going to make a shitload of money doing it. And when it comes down to. Are you more concerned with making the world a better place? Are you more concerned with making nine figures? 
Like they'll take the nine figures and it seems like it happens again and again and again. And in this case, there was the moment at which they could have been like, oh, well, you know, we tried, like it was a good idea, but I guess it's just not, you know, we can't scale it to the point where we're going to make a whole lot of money. So let's go and work on a different project. Instead, they're like, no, fuck it. We're getting it in all these convenience stores, you know, damn the consequences and we'll make tons and tons of dough. And then they eventually, you know, we're going to sell to tobacco companies and just like go full on like the opposite of what we'd always talked about. So I kind of feel like there's this aura around, you know, I guess there are, there are instances in which it's true, but it's that whole like, don't be evil thing was at Google. Mm. And it's like, you know what? That's got nothing to do with anything. Like it's nice to say, and it's nice to have that be your self image. But right. in reality, you're just trying to make a ton of dough. Right. And, and which is which is evil in and of itself to a lot of people. Right. Like the, the capitalism, endless growth, which leads to environmental destruction and income inequality and all the same bullshit that we all hate. Like, yeah. It's the insane greed of people who have more money than like five generations later is going to be able to spend. It's like Jeff Bezos, like making conditions so shitty for his workers <laughs> that they can't use the bathroom. Allegedly. And going to outer space Allegedly. on his $2 billion I mean, five-minute trip. <laughs> Toby, you know, you know, you know what, you know, it's like a little unexplored little side note in this podcast is they talk about the second product they made. You know, they made an, a vaporizer for pot users, right, for marijuana users, and it's popular because like you don't have to smoke a joint and you don't have to have a pipe. Like it's this middle of the road like pen thing, right? right. Very popular in states where marijuana is legal. It's like a product you can buy, and they ended up splitting off that business and like marginalizing it. And I was thinking like. That's actually the altruistic one. It's right. like you want to have pot, but you don't want to be like like a stoner doing it in a stoner way. You just want to be like an adult who smokes pot. Like to me, I, I don't know. Am I wrong that that almost seems like pure, more pure than disrupting big tobacco? Well, it's it's more pure than saying you're going to disrupt big tobacco and then selling your company to big tobacco. I mean, that's like this is the kind of shit that that drives me insane. Because again, it's greed. You know, in the end, like regardless of what you started off with, it it just becomes I can make just so much freaking money. And at that point, like all these other things just go completely out the window. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's it's a slightly different story, but it's the same thing with Elizabeth Holmes, which is like instead of saying, Well, fuck it, it was a great idea, it just isn't working. So I guess, you know, we'll have to try something else. It's like, no, I've got a lot of money on the line here, so I'm just going to fake it as much as I can, you know, regardless of the fact that now, like, all this, like, really uplifting message that I've sold this thing on completely to all these people is just absolute BS at this point. Listen, as Gordon Gecko said, greed is good, greed is right, greed works. Kevin, um, question for you, because the one thing that really strikes me about this podcast is they have so many sources. They have people who are there at the founding of the company. Mm -hmm. They have the original guy who did the original marketing campaign for Jewel. They have uh, the guy who was in charge of sort of like uh, product development. They have the the guy who was in charge of the actual factories at first menu. They have a lot of great sources here, which makes me think at least some of the people we hear do seem like, yes, of course, they're, there's greed and they thought they were going to make a lot of money, but they seem to sincerely be trying to pitch the original altruism of this idea. Do you buy it? Yeah, I have no reason not to. I mean, obviously, you could say they're retconning, you know, their origin story. I don't think the people here, other than maybe saying, thinking like their reputations have been harmed by being associated with Jewel, 
that everybody is now remembering things uh, differently. You know, I don't know. I think I, I would like to think that Laura Beal, who I'd love to talk about later, would sort of provide that context. But I mean, I think that, you know, when you listen to the uh, the student pitch at Stanford, I mean, there's some evidence there that, yeah, this was the original thought that we could make something that'll, you know, keep people from smoking cigarettes or wean them off of cigarettes. But in the end, this is just essentially a big Greek tragedy because it's about heroes who are on a quest and it's their own hubris, their own pride that brings them down. They think they can master this thing, which happens to be it's not about cigarettes. It's about human addiction. Right. And they do not understand that that's bigger than them. And it leads to their downfall. And, you know, there's a lot of examples of this. Who would have thought when you made Facebook that it would end up undermining democracy, right? It just sometimes you one cannot foresee the unintended consequences. And uh, that's kind of what I just was really struck by the idea that, no, I mean, the original, original thought behind Jewel was that this was going to be a way to get people from not smoking. Now, look, if they had positioned it, I think more like Nicorette gum that this is like a cessation program or something similar, maybe people wouldn't have started seeing it as as a not a healthier alternative, just a different, tastier alternative to smoking. But it's just hard to say because they just did not see the warning signs. Hmm. You don't think getting models to wear slinky outfits and, and use Joel doesn't like position it as a smoking cessation program? We basically, you know, took over that table in the back of the bar and set out all of our plume materials and just kind of waited for people to come hang out at the back of the bar with us. We wanted tastemakers. We wanted influencers. We wanted people that other people looked up to for the choices that they made. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, you're right. Yeah, it does. Right. They, they ended up going this completely different way. With fancy triangles. But we the hear, oh, the we triangles hear the, are nice. They keep talking about the triangles. And I'm like, I got I, I looked up the ad and I'm like, yeah, I mean, that is a distinctive like design feature. But, right. you know. But see, we, in this podcast, we hear the reasoning behind that. And you could say, oh, it made sense at the time, but they failed to anticipate X. Right. Right. I mean, like, for example, there's this uh, professor who, like, in congressional testimony, like looked at that advertising and says, it's just like the advertising in big Brazil, tobacco yeah. does in Brazil. And to listen to these guys, we never saw any of that shit, but, but the concepts work for both hmm. at the same time. You know, they were also thinking, yeah, we want to go after somebody who's been smoking a long time, right? Or, or not. Or, okay. So or we, we're not going to go after the 40. You know, they just, it was, they're, they're targeting, just never got around to the idea that this is also going to attract kids it's like this is also going to attract ants when you have this nice picnic out here you know but laura there's a fallacy here right because we hear like the marketing guy who worked at the agency saying like i this was just a campaign i thought of and then you hear the executive saying like well we like trust it at some point like it's kind of bs like we all know how this works somebody up the chain is like yes 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 it looks like the gap it looks like apple it looks like whatever if the mission is really, let's get people to quit cigarettes and do this instead, wouldn't you think that they'd go to that agency and be like, we want a campaign that says, quit smoking, do this instead? Or, I mean, it's at some point, 
someone told these people, make whatever you want that's cool. They didn't say make whatever you want that gets people to stop smoking. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. And and I think that's unfortunate because when I was listening to this, I was thinking, you know, there is another side to this, which is not that, you know, nicotine isn't dangerous and, and like addictive in its own right. But when you have people that have been smoking for decades I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I'm thinking that vaping where you're getting the nicotine and not the smoke is probably at least a little bit better. But that wasn't the target audience. And when you hear the origin story, you think that's going to I I felt like that was like, oh, that's where they're going. That's the target audience. They're going to like help people. And then as the story progresses, it's pretty clear to me, but like this is cool. And the influencer that they were, you know, interviewing and, you know, talking about her photo shoot for the jewel and everything. I'm like, no, this is like cool. It's hip. It's fun. It's like cocaine in the 80s for crying out loud. Mm. I mean, it's like, oh, it's no big, but not as it's no big deal. It's no big (laughs) deal. Everybody's doing it. It's cool. It's fun. It's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, there's definitely some mixed messaging going on here. Yeah, I think the idea is we're going to take people who are currently smoking and then bring them over to Juul, but they never thought about the second generation of customers, which would be they don't start with cigarettes, they start right with Juul. Did they never think about it? They say they never thought about it. It's not the well, same they never thought about it. Okay, well, whose so voice? Who, who was their plan? I, I know, Rebecca, you're being skeptical no, and whatnot, and that's so, so fine, Kevin, but who in this podcast have you heard that backs up that? Okay, but have you ever heard of a company that says, we're going to make a product for one generation of users that no, 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 no. subsequent generation will ever want? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm using my own words, <laughs> right, my own right, thing, right? right. I, I am really amazed, and I think that it was admirable that this was the germ of the idea was to do this. And I think that the podcast shows misstep after misstep as opposed to evil intention followed by another evil intention followed by another evil intention. And I think that's what makes it an interesting story. Instead of being villains, they're all sort of like misguided people who thought this wonderful thing was going to happen and they just didn't. They just kept missing these steps. Fellow cynic Toby Ball, what do you think? Uh, I just think, like, I don't think they were innocent mistakes. I think it was, how do we make this thing huge? And I think it's just like tobacco. It's like when the tobacco companies are like, we got to get the next generation of smokers. Let's, you know, let's let's have a cartoon camel that will appeal to 12-year-olds. And, you know, they, they talk pretty specifically about how the people who were, you know, advocating for this were dressed the way, casually, the way teenagers were and stuff. It wasn't being put out there for, like... Like there is a model for smoking cessation, right? You see it on PSAs all the time on TV, and it's people who have had their lungs removed or, you know, talk through a little thing in their throat and stuff. And it's like, yeah, smoking sucks. You got to stop or else you're going to end up like me. It's not, let's get a bunch of like models in the back of a club with a whole bunch of cartridges out and have people trying out all the different flavors. Like that's, that's something that's, that's a different thing that you're trying to do. And also part of the smoking cessation campaign is the marginalization of smoking, not letting it inside, not letting it in schools, not letting it in movie theaters and jewel you can do anywhere because no one knows. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I can see at the beginning Again, because I think there's this culture of you can do good and make a ton of dough, but there was a point at which they could have said, well, this really isn't going to work for us financially if we're just going after people who are smoking now and trying to get them to quit. That's not why you put those things in convenience stores. Hmm. 
You know, I mean, it's that decision, which is like, I just wanted this thing to be freaking huge. And there it is. I mean, if corporations are people, as the Supreme Court says, I think about all the people in my life who do the most good uh, directly and affect the most people. And they're not thinking, how can I make money off of this? It's just not a thing 100%. you do when you're only trying to do good. Well, but you're, but I have a question for everybody. It seems like at least uh, Rebecca and Toby that you seem to reject the central premise of the narrative story here, which is that they wanted to do something good and it went wrong. Am I picking up the idea that you just thought no, they were cynical from the start, and I when don't the first thing came up? They just they went straight evil. I don't think that's the central premise of the story. I think you are buying okay, okay. the setup well, then, of the podcast as the central premise. I think the central premise is they are saying that's what they did. All this so went you don't wrong. Believe. I think Laura Beale is questioning whether or not that's I true. don't think she is. I well, think go she ahead. is. All right, all right, no. I think she is. I think we just see it differently. She's that's a good fine. journalist. No, I think I, she's I asking with, my question. I, I saw it the same way as Kevin did. I that was how I huh? listened to the podcast and but maybe I'm naive but I listened to it thinking like oh this is like unfortunate because it sounds like they started with this intention and then it just kind of went off the rails. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the one thing I don't hear with everybody they talk to is someone saying, "Yeah, they were in it for the money from the beginning." People say that about the one co-founder who we don't hear from. They all say that he probably was. Uh, there's like the one, there's the two co-founders, there's the one who's like, you know, more down to earth. I, yeah. the okay, other one. <laughs> I, whatever. I mean, I, th- I think I think it's very clear that we see we see this differently. Yeah. Well, I just think that when you go to that school that for that program, like there's a reason why you're going. And I, I don't know. I guess I'm just more cynical like Toby on this one. All right. I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out the vaping fix from Wondery? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this latest podcast from Wondery? Yeah, I'd say thumbs up. I, I you know, I, it's not necessarily uh, true crime in the traditional sense when you're listening to this. But, you know, as parent of a teenager, I think that this was something that I took a lot out of, kind of opened my eyes to a lot more of the bigger picture of vaping. But I think it also, you know, told this origin story that I had not necessarily heard or thought of when I was hearing all the issues coming up in recent years with the vaping in the high school and the middle school and issues that a lot of us hear if we do have kids in the community. So, but it was told in a way that was, you know, engaging, easy to follow. There was a lot of interesting people involved and I liked the storytelling. So I would say thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the vaping fix? So I, I've got kind of mixed feelings about this. I think that I think the things that are sort of analogous to this that are really good. Um, and I think, you know, the stuff about Theranos, I think the books that Michael Lewis writes, like the, you take this and, and you find a personality or two in the story that you can really focus on and make compelling and that, and that you kind of get to know what the story is through that person or people. And I don't feel like that happens at all in this. I mean, I, th- I feel like you have some voices that you hear quite a bit, but you don't really get much of a sense of them as people. You kind of get a sense of their idea of what their experience was. So to me, that kind of keeps it from becoming really good. Because other than that, it just it seems like it's and this happened and then this happened. They made this decision and then this happened. And you know, I think it's like like Kevin said, like it's it's got this sort of trajectory of sort of like this hubris and stuff, but you don't know the people well enough for it to really hit as like a tragedy. Uh, that being said, I mean, it's an important story, which I don't think a lot of people know about. I, I think it, it does make some comments about 
our society and like unintended consequences and stuff. So I, I can't really give it a thumbs down, sort of a moderate thumbs up, but uh, you know, it could have been, I think with a slightly different approach, it could have been much better. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. Uh, I, first off, I, I really love the work of uh, Laura Beale. She did Dr. Death. Wasn't so crazy about Dr. Death 2. She was the voice of that. I don't believe that I, someone else did the reporting. I don't know exactly how much she she did beyond you know reading uh, the, this podcast. I'd like to think that she had a little more to, to do with it than just that. But what it, in this episode, we had Wondery's two biggest you know, hits Dr. Death and Dirty John uh, hosts back to back. That being said, let me get to the, this podcast. I really enjoyed it. I I dug the, you know, the central premise that this thing, which has been a, a societal problem and has made the, you know, the idea of, of smoking uh, an addiction worse, that its origins was in this idea of doing the opposite. And that was very intriguing to me. And you know, I liked hearing from the voices. I think that she does a good job of sort of laying out, you know, what I got out of it was that, it, you know, it wasn't necessarily just one big evil plan with 15 steps to get to where they are, you know, that they were human people who uh, did not anticipate Pandora's box. And uh, so I, I have found the story really compelling. I'm a thumbs up. I share some of Toby's issues, but like in a slightly different context. What's interesting to me is that the more Wondery podcasts I listen to, the more I think about this company very much like I think about like a Silicon Valley startup. They've decided to scale up. They have a model by which to make things that to me, basically, all kind of sound the same, have the same feel. Instead of the folksy Uncle Rock theme here, we have like a hip hop theme, but otherwise the format's the same. Um, I think Laura Beale is a good reporter and a good narrator, but I don't hear her in this podcast at all. She's reading a script. Yeah, she infuses a couple of personal stories here and there. We don't hear her interviewing any of the people. Uh, we don't hear her why she is the one telling the story. It's very much like she is their reporter who has done on other stories about health related things. So let's use Laura for this. Like we have this story. Let's use Laura for this. This feels like very much like many of the Wondery podcasts we've listened to. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, there's good information. Yeah, I learned things. But I also feel like I'm listening to a scaled product, not a story with a soul, not something with central characters. I don't remember any of the people's names that we heard in this podcast. All I remember is like clinical facts, statistics, uh, you know, consequences, um, you know, things about money, things about percentages. And, you know, it doesn't mean that it's like bad, but it's also not great. It's just okay. Like if you want to know the origin story of Jewel, you, you can read a magazine article or you could listen to this podcast. And if the magazine article is written by someone great, like a Patrick Radden Keefe, it's probably going to be better done than this podcast. But the podcast is fine. Not Laura's fault. Not any of the producers who gathered all that great interview tapes fault. It's just that Wondery makes products. And to me, this sounds like a product. So it's a very mild thumbs up for me. <laughs> Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the week. week. It's a happy ending for the Idaho owners of a border collie named Tilly, who was ejected from a vehicle during a car crash. Their SUV was towing a horse trailer when it was T-boned at an intersection. The driver of the other car was taken to the hospital and later released. The dog was thrown out the open window and was last spotted running through a field away from the scene. A couple of days passed and Tilly had not turned up. Seems while on the run, the dog had given himself a job. He was discovered on a nearby sheep farm herding the sheep. The farmer's mom in California saw a social media post about the lost pup and helped reunite him with this family. Tilly was unhurt, a little thin, and just doing the job that, you know, he was bred to do. So, panel, in the Disney movie version, this border collie would have continued on his journey, having all kinds of adventures and jobs along the way. What would have happened next to Tilly on the big screen? Lara Bricker, what do you think? Tilly and the sheep would have become champions in, like, the herding competitions. They would have gone to the local fair. Tilly would have hopped in a truck and gone on a journey from the fair and perhaps crisscrossed the country and then had, like, an incredible journey trip home that was even more dramatic than being found at the sheep farm. Hmm. That's pretty fleshed out, mm-hmm. Laura. Toby Ball, what do you think? <laughs> I'm not that fleshed out at all. I thought uh, Tilly would be uh, delivering those little barrels of rum uh, to mm. uh, people on the oh, ski slopes. Yes. Lost skis, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Kevin Flynn, what do you think? I think that he would... Um, meet up with Wiley Coyote mm-hmm. and they both would have a job where every morning they would go and they'd punch that little clock mm-hmm. and they'd go out in the field and he'd do things where the coyote would try to steal the sheep and mm-hmm. he'd drop the anvil and then the whistle would go off and they'd have lunch together mm-hmm. and then the whistle would go off and they'd go and they'd punch back in and they'd get right back to it. Morning, Sam. Yeah, exactly. And they'd punch <laughs> the thing and see you tomorrow, Sam. You guys don't think he would have made a spider friend who had like a little like net Charlotte's and a little web in the corner of yeah. his uh, little dog pen and that'll do, little Tilly, that'll do nope <laughs> all right we should probably end the show on that note but before we do lara bricker do we have a cat of the week this week well rebecca we have some dogs this week thank goodness that's my some favorite dogs. animal yeah we have some dogs this week and these are dogs i'm familiar with because it's one of our most loyal listeners sue hall mm. one of our canadian friends sue. sue's a uh, big contributor over in the Brichter scale, and she has these very cute little dogs, String Bean, String Bean, and Beamer. And Sue, like prior to the pandemic, would take them to the nursing homes to go visit the elderly residents. They're like therapy dogs, and obviously COVID, you know, shut that way down. And I've been following the progress where like Sue and the dogs basically like all they could do every day was like go for a walk because Canada was really in a pretty serious lockdown. So. The two dogs had their first visit to long-term care since March of 2020. They had an outdoor visit. There's some adorable pictures of the dogs with an elderly gentleman in a wheelchair who looks 
absolutely thrilled. So good job, Therapy Dogs, String Bean and Beamer. Yay. Nice. Laura Bricker, if folks want to pitch their dogs to be, or cats, to be cat of the week, or llamas or emus or any other kind of animal, of course, they can email crimewriterson at gmail.com or put their pet on our Facebook group. But say they want to tweet their animal to you. How can they find you on Twitter, uh, They Laura? can find me at Laura Bricker on Twitter. And Toby Ball, folks want to follow you so they can see your reaction to the explosive government report that says aliens are real. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. Not happening. And yeah, Kevin Flynn, if folks want to follow you on Twitter and see your latest take on everything, Star Wars related, Billy Joel related, baseball about? related. How can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And please join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We'll let you in if you even know like a little bit about the show. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers On after show married with podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we are concocting the next jewel flavor marketed to Laura Bricker, raspberry white chocolate scone. On behalf Mm. of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. I wanted to meet a cat named Seamus. <laughs> I grew up with a guy named Seamus. You mean Seamus? Not Seamus. Seamus. I mean, Seamus is a perfect name for uh, Lara's cat because not only is it Irish, it also <laughs> is slang for a detective or a cop. Oh, it is. There you go. Yeah. Hey, Seamus. <laughs> is that back when all cops it's, were Irish? Yeah, it's a slur. But, yes. you know, it's, <laughs> it's not... <laughs> It's not a complimentary hey, term, Mick. I don't think. <laughs> That's okay. Irish, we can take it. They're the worst. They're worst slurs in the world. Because of the you're people white. Have to, of yeah. course, you can take. It. Of course, we can take it. The Irish are fine. It's, we're fine. It's okay. It's That's okay. all right. The Italians, we're fine. We're fine. <laughs> Go ahead. Partners in Crime Media. Media.